This week, I really sensed the Lord wanted me to speak about the importance and priority of biblical fellowship, the joy of doing life together and the opportunity that 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 brings. And as we start the year off, just pulling together our life groups really for the first time, probably last week and then again this week, I think it's a great opportunity just to, to pause and examine what are they all about? Why do we do this? And how can I ensure that I not just attend my group because Dave said we should and it's part of being the church, but actually I, I play a part in building my group for the glory of God and suck the juice then out of biblical fellowship, something that's so important. So we're going to look together at Ephesians chapter 2. I want us to read from verse 19 through 22 and then we'll pray and then we'll dive in. Let's read. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Well, Father, we come to you now around your word. Lord, this is the most biblically accurate portion of any part of the message and any part of the morning. When we read your word, when you communicate to us directly from your written word. And Lord, as we pause today on just the adventure of building together, Lord, would you speak to our hearts? Would you freshly infuse us for for what is going on in our midst as we build Sovereign Grace Church? Lord, you've been so good to us to consider that we are as a church less than a year and a half old and yet there are already deep, lasting friendships with those in this room. Lord, that is scandalous grace. How kind of you and how kind you are. Lord, would this message serve to deepen those relationships and use it for the advancement of your kingdom, Lord. Amen. I don't know whether you've been keeping up to speed with the news, but if you have, you'll notice that in Europe it is particularly cold. And in Britain it's really cold. Apparently my, my mum was telling me that where, about 10 miles away from where I grew up, it was minus 16 yesterday. And you think, oh, that sounds quite, quite chilly. So it's really cold over there. And it reminded me of the winter of 2004. You see, the winter of 2004 was another really, really cold year. It was absolutely vicious. But it was made even more vicious by the fact that Christchurch, the church I was serving at that time, and the heating broke down. That was awkward. It's a big church. We had about 600 people come along to the church at that point. And the heating broke down on the day we were running an Alpha. There was 120 people due to turn up at Alpha, and we had no heating in a room about four times the size of this room. That was awkward. But me being me, I don't want to cancel it because we're going to be telling people about Jesus. So let's think of something. Well, I can think of anything um, all day. So I just thought, well, it'll be all right. People will bring their coats. But the caretaker had a good idea. The caretaker purchased one fan heater. It was about this big. And, and it had a little red light on the top to let you know it is on. And he actually went in the room, which is massive, and he put it right by the lectern and then just gave it everything all day. See, the caretaker really thought that this might be able to in some way heat up the room. But what was intriguing to me is when I arrived for Alpha that evening, it was still very cold, even though the fan heater was giving it everything. But what was intriguing is that that fan heater really thought that it could do it. Because when I went into the room, it was pitch black, apart from this red light. And all I could see was this. 
and this, and you just wanted to talk and communicate to the fan eater because clearly the little fella thought, I've got this, Taylor, thank you. I've got this, I'm going to do my damage for Jesus so that you can have Alpha and eat up the room. And you just wanted to communicate and have a conversation with this fan eater if it could talk to you and say, what are you doing? But clearly... That fan heater, in all genuineness, was convinced that it could do it. It had been given a great task that day, and yet in all reality, it thought it could do it, but it couldn't. It had been given an amazing task that it just simply could never do by itself. And the thing that I want to make clear to us this morning is that just like that fan heater, we too have been given a great task. And you know what? you and I can simply not do this task by ourselves. We can't. We've been given a task by the Lord, which is truly great. And yet, in all honesty, it's a task that we just simply cannot do by ourselves. It's not possible. It's it's too vast. It's too grand to try and tempt it by ourselves. And that, in essence, is what this text before us today is all about. The premise that we can't do this by ourselves. You see, in Ephesians chapter 4 through 6 which you will know because we studied it for about six months at Sovereign Grace Church. The chapters 4 through 6 are filled with what this great task is all about. It starts in chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul explains to us that we have been called to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. Well, the calling that we've received, he's already talked about in chapters 1 and the start of chapters 2. He's explained to us at length that you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were absolutely lost. And yet before the foundation of the earth, God chose you. At the right time then, he sent his son to die in your place. And so that through faith in him, which would also be a gift, you could be forgiven of your sin and justified and reconciled. You could be adopted into the family of God, receive the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing in your inheritance. And you could know without any question at all that heaven is going to be your home. He maps out over two great chapters just the great salvation that we have in our lives. And then in chapter 4, he starts, okay, Having listened to that, in light of that, live in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. Live in a manner worthy of the salvation that God has has lavished upon you in great grace and great splendor. And then he details what that is for us. He explains that we've been called by God to pursue holiness, to put off the old self and renew our minds and put on the new self and clothe ourselves with godliness so that we may be, by God's grace, more effective as his disciple-makers, so that we may be more reflective of, of who he is as we join with the Holy Spirit in trying to help and trying to put off the whole self and pursue holiness, something we're called to. We've been called by God to play our parts in the building of a local church. That's what he talks about at length in chapter 4, explaining that, listen, you've all been gifted. You all have gifts and abilities. So in effect, come and work for Jesus then. Where? Well, in the context of a local church, somewhere where you are connected and committed and where you can commit yourself in love to others and where as each part does its work, the body builds itself up in love. He explains that to do that, you're going to need the gospel and that we need to apply that gospel, the great salvation, to every area of our lives, to our marriages, to our parenting, to our relationships, to our employment. He starts to talk through all the different things in life that we're going to need to do by His grace to really live for Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And He explains at length then that you are the body of Christ. 
You are his hands and feet. And so you, by the grace of God, need to go make disciples of all nations. It's on our head now. So where is Jesus? Well, he's residing at the right hand of the Father. Oh, so where is he on earth? Right here in you. The spirit of Jesus that resides in your life, you are now the hands and feet. It's a pretty full-on task. And as we spent last year looking through it at length, I'm sure you'd agree that this is, this is quite an incredible task that we have been called to as Christians. And we simply can't do it by ourselves. And Paul explains that in chapter 2. It's in chapter 2 that Paul toils us around a serious means of grace, a serious means of grace which can simply be known as our great belonging. Let's read it again. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's your story. You were foreigners and aliens, not only towards God, but towards each other. Foreigners and aliens, not not reconciled to one another, not, not living in the kingdom of God under grace for one another. That's not what we were doing. But now, through Jesus Christ, your fellow citizens members of the household of God being built together in specific circumstances into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, the Apostle Paul knows too well that you cannot do this task by yourself. All the things that he's going to go on to talk about in 4, 5 and 6 for the glory of God are too much if they're just isolated. So just prior to that, he says, you know what? You're going to need others too. You're going to need others to be joined with in community, in in local churches, fellow citizens, members of the household of God being built together for the glory of God. Now here's the point that I want to make this morning from this message. If we truly want to live for Jesus, then quite simply, we need each other. If this is the real deal, if you are genuinely saying as a Christian, my life is not my own, and I want to live for Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I think that's brilliant. Here's lesson one. You need others in your life. You need other people to help you. Because this task is far too great for you to do by yourself. And so God has joined us with other people. We weren't designed to achieve this task by ourselves. We were designed to be interdependent upon one another and commit ourselves in the context of a local church then where we can do life with others. You know, there are numerous doing life with others statements in the Bible. We're called to rejoice with one another, weep with one another, counsel one another, care for one another. We're called to serve one another and encourage one another. We're called by God's grace to spur one another on and confess to one another. When's the last time you you confessed to a fellow believer where you're at? Well, that's a command to you by God in his word. We're called to pray together. And we're called in the book of Romans 12 verse 10 to be devoted to one another. That's such a strong word, isn't it? Yeah, but Lord, I'm busy in the week and I might be able to fit in on a Sunday. God looks right at you in the eyes and says, no, be devoted to one another. What? Yeah. If you want to live for me, you want to achieve what I'm calling you to do as a Christian, then you need to be devoted to one another by the grace of God and for my glory. J.I. Packer says it this way as a result. 
He says we should not think of our fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury, an optional addition to the exercise of private devotions. Fellowship is one of the great words of the New Testament. It denotes something that is vital to a Christian's spiritual health and central to the church's true life. The church will flourish and Christians will be strong, listen, only when there is fellowship. Theologian Bruce Milne carries on. He says, The Christian life is inescapably corporate. Teaching on Christian holiness is frequently concentrated almost exclusively on the holy man or the holy woman to the neglect of the biblical concern for the holy people or the holy church. The ideal of the all-competent Christian, able to meet every spiritual challenge and live a life of unbroken sin, has undoubtedly produced remarkable examples of Christian character. But as every Christian counselor knows, this emphasis has driven many to a lonely struggle ending in despair or disillusionment or even worse, the hypocrisy of a double standard life. This whole approach needs re-examination. The bulk of the New Testament teaching on the Christian life, including major sections on holiness, occur in letters to corporate groups. To churches. All the major exhortations to holy living are plural. Similarly, all the New Testament promises of victory are corporate. In other words, the apostles envisage the Christian life and Christian sanctification in the context of loving and caring fellowship. The Bible knows nothing at all of Lone Ranger religion. It's not there. It knows everything of getting saved and then getting committed and playing a part where you understand, I need others. I need help and I need to help. I need others' gifts and I need to use my gifts for the glory of God and the building up of the church as we're built together into a dwelling place of God. If we truly want to live for Jesus, then quite simply, we need each other. And it's for that reason that Sovereign Grace Church is a place built with small groups. We are, folks, unapologetically. Sovereign Grace Church is and always will be, while I have the joy of being your senior pastor, a place built with small groups. And every Sovereign Grace Church across the world is built that way too. We recognize the value of of fellowship, of building together in small communities. See, genuine fellowship, by definition, isn't possible on your own. Have you noticed that? When I'm by myself, I'm surprised how humble I am. I mean, really. I get by myself and I think, I've just quite clearly grown in humility. And then when I'm with other people, I realize I haven't grown at all. I've gone backwards. It, because we need other people to actually understand how fellowship functions. Our assessment of ourselves is usually quite grand when we're by ourselves. But then when we get with other people, we realize, man, alive, I've got some growth to do because I've got some things in my life that I've got to bottom out and deal with. Genuine fellowship, by definition, is not possible on our own. And genuine fellowship, by nature, is not really possible with 75 people plus either. You know, if everybody on starting point applies to become a member of this church, we will have 100 adults by Easter. You imagine rocking up and that's your life group? <laughs> so, uh, okay, well, let's just go around one after another. How's your marriage right now? Oh, this is awkward, isn't it? I mean, how's it really going to work? I mean, then you think, well, I've got to, I just really want to try and bottom out relationships with each other and we really want to grow in our affection for each other. So what I'm going to do is, is my love, you and I, we are going to have one person from our 100 people life group around once a week. So we'll see them once every two years. It's going to be really lovely. Can, I mean, can you imagine the scene? It's not effective. 
Fellowship is not genuine where it's by ourselves, but it's not effective when it's in huge, vast groups and that's all we know. But in small groups of 10 to 14 people, in life groups, as we call them, genuine fellowship is biblically defined. That is really possible. It's a small group where you can know and be known. It's a small group of people where you can apply the gospel and apply the Bible together. And so as you get to know each other properly and not just surfacely, you're able to say, you know what, let me just encourage you from this passage because I think this speaks into what you're walking through. And I know you and we're praying for you and we love you and we're together. In some ways in life group, we all take it in turns to be that person, right? There's all different times when we need others to to help us and, and aid us in our walk. It's a time where we give and receive care to help one another through the challenges of life. As sure as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. Well, when you lie on your pillow at night, who are the faces that come into your mind as people who would be there for you when your troubles fall? If there are none, we need a life group. We need a functioning life group where people truly care, where we know people are covering my back. They're caring for me. They're bothered about my life. There are times when we can encourage one another towards growth and progress in the faith. Genuine fellowship is not fruitful or effective in massive groups. But get small groups together and it can be very, very effective for the glory of God. John Stott says it this way. He says, The value of the small group is that it can become a community of related persons and in it the benefit of relatedness cannot be missed, I like this, nor its challenges evaded. Have you noticed that? The closer you get to the group, the more you think, I don't think I like some of these people. That's the way it works. Guess what? They're thinking the same about you. This is the way it works. It's family life. The benefit of relatedness cannot be missed, nor its challenges evaded. I do not think it is an exaggeration to say, therefore, that small groups are indispensable for our growth into spiritual maturity. I agree with him. I think they are absolutely indispensable. And that is why, unashamedly, Sovereign Grace Church is and always will be a place built with small groups. It's absolutely vital and key. It will enable us, by the grace of God, to grow to 100, 200, 400, 600, whatever the Lord does in our lives. And you, by the grace of God, will still feel this is a very tight family. You lose small groups, we don't feel too tight anymore. This just feels vast and huge. But you build small groups. When I was at Covenant Life Church for a year, that that church was 2,000 people. It was the closest family church I've ever been in my life. They built with small groups. People were very tight and very relational and they were growing for the glory of God and it was beautiful and wonderful to see. Here's my question then this morning. Here's where I want us to hang out for the remainder of our time. It's a question that I want you to examine yourself on. Please do me a favor and don't evaluate the other people in your group on this, but please evaluate yourself on this. Allow this to be a personal evaluation for yourself. Here's the question. If Sovereign Grace Church is so clearly a place built with small groups, then how am I doing in the building of my small group? If Sovereign Grace Church is so clearly a place built with small groups, then how am I doing in the building of my small group? It's a tough question, eh? And I'm aware even in saying it, and even in planning it this week, and thinking, this is a good question. Thinking, how do you get your hands around that? And I'm aware, when when we come to personal evaluation, it can be tricky to get our handle on, well, how am I doing in building? I I don't know. Okay, I think. It can be very difficult to assess. And so I've actually got four sub-questions, which is where we're going to spend our time today, to help us get our hands around it. Four sub-questions, which will really help us to evaluate 
Am I attending or am I building? Am I just tagging along or am I really building into my small group and therefore positioning myself for this group to grow in spiritual fellowship for the glory of God? Now, before we go through these questions, here's a couple of things. I just want you to know without question, this message is not a corrective message. Okay, I have got more fear of God than fear of you. And so if a corrective message was needed, I would bring a corrective message. This is not one of those times. It is not at all. I, I think you guys excel. I really do. In fact, Glenn was saying to me just a few weeks ago, and he said, you know, how, how do you feel church is going? And I said, Glenn, I, I've never been more excited about Sovereign Grace Church where it's going. Because having been in my last church for 17 years, this church is like my last church. It is, it is a sovereign grace church. You, you are exemplifying the values of gospel-centered living or seeking to win the gospel and know the gospel and apply the gospel in the midst of fellowship and brandish the gospel and take it out. I, I couldn't be more excited. And as I talk to your group leaders about what's going on in group and just hearing about not specific stories but the general flavor of groups, it, it's fantastic to see how God is knitting us together. Just recently, Mike Paslich's group had to multiply out because we've been growing. And the reality is if all these folk from starting point join, there's going to be other groups having to multiply out. This is just the way, the way it works, the way we're able to do what we do for the glory of God. But one of the things that blessed me in Mike's group dividing down is nobody wanted to divide. Nobody wanted to, you know, I just, these are my family. What are you doing? It's like losing a sister. And you're like, I, obviously we do have to divide down at times, but I love that heart. And I love that that's people's experience, that people have become tight. And so, all right, do we have to? I feel like I'm having to choose between mum and dad here. That's the way people feel. And you think, well, great. That's the way you want it to feel. You want people to feel that we're getting tight. Okay, who's going to be mum? Chris or Mike? <laughs> yeah, Chris can be, be mum. But he's got a beard. <laughs> and so this message is not a corrective message, okay? It, it is not. You excel in this, and I'm, I'm proud to be your pastor, and I would bring anybody into any of your groups and say, you know what? Check that out and, and you will be blessed. You will be greatly blessed by attending that group and the people that are in that group. And yet, this is, me- this is a message designed to, I-, I hope, serve you well. See, I want to serve you well. And I think life groups are one of those things that it is very easy to lose a divine perspective on and to forget, why are we doing this again? And before we know it, when we forget why we're doing it, when we forget a divine perspective, we tag along, but we're not, it's not quite working out. Because we've stopped building into it, we're just attending. And so we're just there to receive, but we're not there to, to give and to really play a part. And so I wanted to bring a divine perspective on life groups, on biblical fellowship to us this morning. But at the same time, I'm also aware as I seek to serve you well, that in the busyness of life, we often don't spend very long evaluating ourselves, do we? And because our evaluations are short and somebody says to you, so, how do you think you're doing with your life group at the minute? We all say, oh, not bad. And if somebody said, could you score it out of 10? You'd say, you'd, you'd almost say, nearly everybody, oh, it's probably a 7. Because nobody wants to be like a, a 5. You know, because you just think, oh, no, I know I'm better than them. But no one's going to be a 9 because that would be proud. So, oh, it's probably a 7. And I think I probably, how are you building? 7. That's what we all do. But I think when we pause and actually evaluate ourselves in light of Scripture, uh, that's when we can evaluate and allow the grace of God in our lives to then work out, am I building or am I just attending? So four questions. Here we go. Let's crack on with it together. Number one, am I actively and willingly playing my part in group? Am I actively 
and willingly playing my part in group. Now, actively and willingly, even at the basic level, it is always going to involve turning up and participating. So let's just get that one out of the way. That, that, that's just like a, a given. We need to actually turn up and we need to participate if we're actually going to be growing as a life group. We all know that, right? And you're all nodding because you say, oh, this is just basic. Did you really go to pastor's college for that? And I reply, yes, I did. It's a surprise. But, you know, this is the type of quality training we have. Listen, the reason why I mention it is because although it is obvious, I submit to you that everybody is tempted at different points to do a no-show. And everybody is tempted at different points that even if they do show, to pull a no-comment. And so we sit there and we present and so we just sit there and we think, I- I'm sure I'm here, my mere attendance is causing me to grow. Probably not. And so I think we can be very tempted to no show and no comment at different times. And yet if we're really going to be builders in group, we've got to show and we've got to, we've got to talk. See, one of the things that I'm so grateful for my own father in is my dad was and is a strong man. And he taught us as kids to have non-negotiables, things that you wouldn't move on. And the premise being that, son, your non-negotiables will become who you are. And I found that to be true. And so as I viewed my dad, church was a priority, giving was a priority, serving the church was a priority, serving his family was a priority, and there were non-negotiables within that, that we're not moving off this, son. This is who we are. As for this and this, my house, you and my house, this, this is what we do. And I'm real grateful for that, because life groups got built into my life then as a non-negotiable. Something that you think, I'm not going to... I'm not gonna, leaves life group because I need them and this is important it's a part part of of my life and I'm grateful to my father on that for this reason there are times when I've been tempted to not get a life group that's sometimes even when I'm leading it okay but there are signs when you're tempted to think I just I'm so tired and I'm just so busy but because my father taught me to have non-negotiables I go the reason why I'm so grateful to my dad is because it's often been those times when I've often not wanted to go that I've most needed to go and I've most encountered God in going. See, it's often when we're too busy to go that we desperately need to go. It's often when we feel so overloaded in life with so much on that we need to go so that we can be with brothers and sisters and allow their perspective and God's word to affect my life. See, if you're too busy to go to life group, you're too busy. Change other things around. But life group, we, we need that. This is how we build together. This is how we get close together. This is how we build family for the glory of God. And when we go, we do need to talk. We need to communicate. And you know what? Most of the time, we don't talk because of fear of man. Not always. Sometimes we haven't got a clue what the message was about and so we have nothing to say. But other times, it's just because we're afraid of what people might think. Or if I really tell them that on the way here tonight we had an argument and could they pray for us, they're going to think we're idiots and so this isn't going to work out. And so we, we say nothing. And we sit there like, like mutes and that doesn't work. There's nothing more awkward for a group leader when that happens. You would get your group together and you're all excited and you hand out the snacks and everybody is chatting away. They are having an absolute... It's a party atmosphere before we start. And then we all sit down. Oh, we're going to start now, everybody. And, oh, great, we're going to start, we're going to start. And then you ask the first question. So how's everybody doing? <laughs> and tumbleweed comes and the budgie starts chirping. And, it, and it's awkward. Do we really think we've got nothing to say? Lara would always be there. If you were in my life group, I'd just make you laugh and that would, we'd be away. <laughs> but you know, I know the temptation. I know the temptation not to talk, not to disclose, but we're never going to be known and be known unless we disclose ourselves. People can't guess. 
Like, all right, do I have a sense that maybe you're not okay? And Oh, no, I'm fine. Really? You're crying. Oh, onions. It, it's not going to work. We need to communicate and actually explain to folk, this is where I'm at and we need help. And so actively and willingly, obviously at its basic level, includes turning up and participating. And yet on another level, actively and willingly, also involves playing our part in the group in terms of our gifts, using our gifts to build up the group in love. You see, whether you realize it or not, everybody in this room has gifts. Absolute fact. 1 Corinthians 12 says, To each is given. It does not have a sub-note that your name is excluded from that. To each is given. To absolutely everybody, as a Christian, you are gifted. And yet so often I think that we think that I'm going to use that gift. I don't know how I'm going to use that gift. I'm going to use it in the wider body. Well, I think great. But make sure you're using it in your life group too. Maybe you've got the gift of mercy or encouragement or hospitality or administration or or faith or compassion. Whatever it is, rock it up and, and use it in group. Use it with this small group of people to help godliness come into their lives, to help the gospel be applied to their lives in joy and grace. We need to do that for the glory of God. You see, 1 Peter 4 verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another earnestly as good stewards of God's varied grace. Life groups are all about one another. So, commanded by Scripture, use therefore your gift to serve one another as good stewards. Well, you know what, Dave, I don't have time. There's a lot on. Well, then you're too busy. Because this is all we got. This is it. This is how we build. This is what we're called to do. You want to live for Jesus? I do. But I'm too busy for that. Okay, you are never going to live for Jesus then. Because Jesus, whether you like it or not, has designed us in such a way to need others. And this is others. This is how it works. So we need to be there. So actively, am I actively or willingly playing my part in group? Chew it over. Think about it. Examine yourself. Number two, am I faithfully positioning myself to care for others? See, if we're going to be builders in our groups and not mere attenders, then the way we position ourselves towards the group in terms of caring is going to be of absolute vital importance. You see, we're Christians, right? That means we're followers of Jesus Christ. That means we are the hands and feet of Jesus to one another. This is it. This is it. This is how you're going to receive and grasp and enjoy Jesus. It has a together element. The Bible isn't Jesus and me, it's Jesus and we. We are that to each other. John Piper says it this way, love it. He says, the brethren of Jesus are the church. If you persecute the church... You persecute Jesus. And if you love and show affection to the church, you show love and affection to Jesus. The church is his body. It is the physical form of his presence on earth. Touch the church and you touch the very body of Christ. Jesus Christ is still very present in the world today. Where? In his body. Where is body? That's us. And so 2,000 years ago, the care and comfort and encouragement and compassion that Jesus availed in his life towards people, who's going to do that now in your life groups? Well, well, we are. We've been called to do that. We've been called to be Jesus to one another. We've been called to care for one another and carry one another's burdens and love one another and serve one another and stand together for the glory of God. He's still present in his body. 
That's us. One of the stories that I came across a while ago was the testimony of Cindy Baduris. Cindy was in Covenant Life Church in, in Gatorsburg, America, when, when we were there. And she gave a testimony while we were there just about how God had been moving in her, in her care group, they call them. Listen, listen to what she says. She says, My husband was diagnosed with a severe case of chronic fatigue syndrome in 1988 and has not been able to work since 1990. With each passing year, he has become worse and has gotten to the point where his life has no resemblance to normality as you and I know it. He cannot walk for more than three to four minutes at a time and due to other difficulties has a very difficult time interacting with me or others. Bill lives with a tremendous amount of pain throughout his entire body and is always exhausted and weak, feeling like he has the flu. This past spring, he was very close to being bedridden and I needed to take off close to seven weeks to care for him. Bill and I have been a part of the Merriman's group for over three years. They have excelled in caring for us. Over the years, I've been brought to tears on many occasions by their expression of love and the sacrificial ways they have demonstrated it. One couple provided us a large sum of money so that Bill could see a specialist in California. The care group has fasted and prayed for Bill and I over a week on two different occasions. They took up a collection for us and we were able to purchase a motorized scooter for Bill so that he could get around and do a few other things to improve his quality of life. During this recent leave of absence that I took to care for Bill, they provided numerous meals, coordinated meals from other care groups and ran many errands for us. I simply cannot thank God enough for my care group. You know, as you hear that testimony, I'm sure you're like me, I feel provoked in it. And I feel provoked to the point where you think, Lord, if everybody in my care group, my life group, cared like me, how much of Jesus would they feel? Because to Cindy, the group was Jesus to her. She was. She needed Jesus, but she needed somebody to be Jesus to her. That's what life groups are for. They're there to be able to stand together and weep together where necessary and hold on to one another and serve one another very intentionally as we map out Romans 12 verse 10 of what it is to be devoted to one another. If you read the book of Acts, it's everywhere. These guys, it was so important that they're building together and laying their lives down to serve one another for the glory of God in the gospel. So let me ask you, how are you doing in positioning yourself for care for others? How's it going? If you're doing it, great. Keep doing it. Keep doing it all the more. But if you think, to be honest, I, I'm not sure I really do care for others. I, if everybody cared in the group like me, it probably wouldn't be going too well. Well, let, let grace-motivated change then affect us this year. Because that's why God's given us that care group. That's why God in his sovereignty has put you in that care group because there's people in there that need to be on the receiving end of your care, your compassion, your encouragement. So let it be for the glory of God. Number three, am I consistently aware of my need for group? Am I consistently aware of my need for group? See, being a builder of a life group without question involves actively and willingly playing our parts. It, it, it involves that and always will. Likewise, it's always going to involve faithfully positioning ourselves to care for others. That's always going to be two staple diets of group. And yet I submit to you that there will always be a serious fuel deficiency in our understanding of life group until we recognize our very clear need for the group. A need for others. Not for them, but for me. 
because I need others in my life. I need to know, but I need to be known. I need to serve, but I need to be served. I need to care, but I need others to care for me sometimes. And I think when somebody builds a group and is effective in that and is fuel for that, they recognize that. They don't just turn up to serve. They turn up because they think, I, I need you. I need you guys. I need you in my life. I need your help. See, in one sense, the church is an army. And I absolutely love that side of it. I do. I absolutely am razzed about missional thinking, about brandishing the gospel, about regimenting up and about taking the gospel out. And I think this city desperately needs churches like this one, which there are already many, that are willing to brandish the gospel and take it out. That is a missional element of church life where we say, all right, I'm, ple- you know, I'm sad that you are upset right now with what you're going through, but what you are going through is nothing like what my next door neighbor is going through because right now they are an object of God's wrath and running headlong to hell. So you hold that thought a minute and we love you and care for you, but right now we've got to brandish the gospel and get out. I love that. That's army, and that's part of church life. It is, army, it is army thinking, it is missional thinking for the glory of God. But in another sense, we're also a family, right? We're brothers and sisters. We stand together, so sometimes people fall out on things. You notice that's what brothers and sisters do sometimes, but that's when it takes pastors and leaders, fathers in the faith in some ways, to come along and say, you know what, we better work this out for the glory of God because this isn't right. And the Bible, by God's grace, has called us to show unity to one another and strive for unity. So let's work this out. Where do we need to humble ourselves and listen? That's part of how we grow. We are a family together, and that's part of church life. But the truth is, church is not only army and family. The longer I've been a pastor, the more I've realized church is also a hospital. (laughs) It is. There's part of church life where... You know, people come in and there's arms hanging off and there's legs hanging off and it's like, oh my gosh, the artery is just spewing. There, there are times when it is just hospital living. You see, you may have noticed that God in His grace through Scripture has not called these super-Christians, independent, I-can-do-it-all people to Himself, has He? Read the Old Testament or the New. It ain't those types of people. It's people that are needy, people that need help, people that have deficiencies, people that sin people that have weaknesses and challenges, and then he puts them together and he explains, listen, you need each other because you ain't going to manage to do this by yourself. So you you need each other for the glory of God. And so use your deficiencies, come together and begin to care for one another and work together and do life together for the glory of God. Well, we're the same. We need each other. If Sovereign Grace Church is going to become the church which I believe we're called to be, we desperately need each other. It is not going to happen any other way. We need each other in our lives. One illustration I heard a number of years ago about, about this need for others was in a commentary by Donald Gray Barnhouse. He says this, Several years ago, two students graduated from Chicago Kent College of Law. The highest ranking student in the class was a blind man, Nate Overton. And when he received his honour, he insisted that half the credit go to his friend, Caprizac. They had met one another in school when the armless Mr. Caprizac had guided the blind Mr. Overton down a flight of stairs. This acquaintance ripened into a friendship and a beautiful example of interdependence. The blind man carried the books which the armless man read aloud in their common study and thus the individual deficiency of each was compensated by the other. I love that. You know, these two guys, they went on to actually open a law firm together. And they still work together today, serving one another and doing law together. But I've often thought about Overton and Caprizac. 
And I've often wondered, you know, when they met each other at law, what if one of them had said, had just pretended that they didn't really have the deficiency? And so the blind man's walking down the stairs and somebody says, are you all right? Yeah, mate, she'll be all right. Really? You, you look like you're blind. Or the guy that's got no arms and, you know, he's, he's trying to carry his books. I mean, how's he going to do it? But he's pretending, no, I'll be fine. Don't worry about it. I'll be fine. Or what if they'd recognised their deficiencies, but when people had tried to help, they'd just say, no, mate, it's all right, I'm on it. I've sorted it. I'll be all right. It just, it just wouldn't have worked, would it? There would have been no story. And yet it's because that they were humble and honest enough and aware of their need for others that by God's grace, each of those deficiencies were able to be compensated by the other. That's the way God's designed it to work in church life too. We can say to folk, listen, it's alright, I'll be alright. And we can just pretend. But the truth of Scripture is we need others. We need others to help us with our deficiencies. And in some ways, they need you because you'll help them with theirs too. That's how God's bringing us together. Stones of different shapes, different sizes, and bringing us together and building us into a temple of the Lord. But if we keep taking ourselves out as the stone and say, I think I'll be alright, it's never going to work. We're not designed to make it work that way. So are you aware of your need for your life group? Do you go aware that I need these people in my life? If not, then adjust that perception of yourself. You are deceived in your perception of yourself. You need others. Question four then. Finally, am I ongoingly supportive and honouring of my group leader? See, for any small group to thrive, a godly, God-glorifying, gifted leader is vital. It's just part of the ingredients. How do you make a cake? Well, if you're going to make a cake of a life group, you're going to need a leader for the glory of God. We're going to need that individual to use the gift that God has given them for his glory. And as the pastor here, I would have to say, I cannot thank God enough for the life group leaders that he's given us in this local church. It is an absolute privilege to serve alongside these men who are wonderfully assisted by their wives, who are seeking to care for the small groups of people that have been assigned to them for the glory of God, to seek to bring the gospel to bear and to care for you as best they possibly can. And the truth is, it's not an easy task. It can look dead easy until you have a go and then you realize, my, this is a bit more complicated than I thought and there's, there's different characters in the room and what do I actually say? It's a harder task than we think and yet I think these men, assisted by their wives do it so very well. And so as a result, I believe that they're worthy of our honour. I believe they're worthy of my honour and my affection and my encouragement. But I also believe they're worthy of your honour and your affection and your encouragement as you sit under their leadership in the context of your life group. So how are you doing in that? How are you doing with ongoingly supporting them and and honouring them and getting behind them as your leaders? Now, I'm aware for many that can be a a strange concept to think, well, how do you do that? What does that look like? Well, here's a few thoughts just to finish this off this morning on how we might be able to honour our group leader. Now, aside from laughing at their jokes, I'd put that as number one on the list because every group leader, that makes it like millennium. Okay, so try and work on that. But apart from that, a few other things. Rightly assume that they are not Sherlock Holmes. Please assume they're not Sherlock Holmes. You know, sometimes as a pastor, you'll, you'll chat to somebody and they'll come to you in tears and you say, oh, what's up? My group leader just doesn't understand what's going on. 
And you say, have you told them? No! (laughs) Well, you know what? They're not the Holy Spirit and they're not Sherlock Holmes. So you need to to communicate to them. You need to let them know, you know what? I'm struggling with this. I think sometimes when people leave churches, in, in part, sometimes it can be because they think their group leader or even their pastor is Sherlock Holmes and you're meant to observe somebody from afar on a Sunday and know they're not okay, I've got to go after them. You, you just can't do it. You need people to come and say, hey, listen, just so you know, I'm, I'm struggling with this right now. Would you pray with me or would you help me or maybe I don't understand what's going on. And Oh, great, of course. But we're not Sherlock Holmes. And so always assume that your leader is not Sherlock Holmes. If you're struggling with things, go tell them. Go communicate to them. That's a real way of honouring them and loving them and supporting them and what they're seeking to give their lives to in serving you. Number two, actively participate in their plans for the group. Those random socials that can appear very random, sometimes as a group leader they're actually planned, although they appear random, and they're planned just to try and bring the group together. So don't think of the social as, oh, it's a night off, it's probably not that important. (laughs) Get behind them and support them. And if they've planned it, if they've been bothered enough to put it on the diary, there'll be a purpose for it. Feel free to ask them what the purpose is, and if they say, I don't know, have a night off. But apart from that, get there. Be a part of what they're doing. Is they're seeking to build you together for the glory of God. And when they ask questions in group, try and, try and answer them. Don't, don't let the tumbleweed, it's awkward. Let, give an answer, so tell you what you think. Number three, where appropriate, offer constructive feedback to your group leader. See, it is true, in my opinion, that there is no such thing, no, nothing more proud than an unsolicited opinion. There isn't. When it's just an unsolicited opinion, it's just boom, you're having it. That, that is pride at its rankest level. And yet, that doesn't mean we shouldn't ask a question. I think we should. I think it's great. I love it when people come to me and say, you know what, can I make an observation? Or can I ask a question about, why did you say that? Or why are we doing this? And that's not proud. That's humble. That's coming and being aware that we're all a family and we need each other's help. And your group leaders need your help. Because sometimes we think of questions in group that are absolutely rubbish. And it needs a faithful person to come and say, I have no idea what you're on about. You know, can I help you with the questions? Or is there any way I can, is there any way I can assist? You know, the the last life group social, we really loved it. But the three and a half hour drive was awkward. And if there's any way, you you can communicate to them about your concerns. Try and come alongside them and, and share any concerns you have. Let them know how they're doing. Also, finally, take time wherever you can to encourage them. Your group leaders will be, on the whole, unaware of where the grace of God is using them. It's the way it works. And you may have concern at different points. If I really encourage them, I'll make them proud. The Bible never, ever commands you to use that. The Bible says to outdo each other with honouring. It's a very British way to think, oh, I don't want to make them proud, so I won't say anything. Don't be British. Be biblical. We want to encourage. Not that I'm saying all British are unbiblical, obviously, being one of them. But use your gift of encouragement to encourage them. Let them know where they're doing well and do that for the glory of God. Listen, these men are seeking to lead you in the adventure of building together. That's what they're doing. And just like the fan heater, you can't do it by yourself. You need others in your lives. We need each other. We need our small groups. We need our life groups. And so as we get stuck into 2012, by the grace of God, ensure that this year you're not just attending, but you're building You're building a group for the glory of God, building them together. So actively and willingly play your part. Faithfully position yourself to care. Work hard to make sure you're consistently aware of your need for group. 
and do all you can to ongoingly support and be honouring of your group leader. To truly live for Jesus, whether you like it or not, we need each other. It's the way he's made us. So by God's grace then, let's build together. Let's build groups. And by his grace, would he truly be glorified. Amen? Let's pray. We're not going to sing a song, but let me just pray as we finish. Well, Father, thank you for your grace and thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, it's so encouraging as a preacher when you stand before your word that I don't stand there just confused as to what you're on about, but you make it very clear as to how we're to build, how we're to do life together for your glory. Lord, I pray for our life groups this year. I pray that we would become truly close and that biblical fellowship would indeed be our theme and our ongoing theme for the glory of God. Lord, help us to knit together relationally when new people have been added into groups. Lord, help us to humbly, as starting point comes to an end at the end of April, be ready to multiply out where necessary because, Lord, this is not our church. This is your church. And so you do with it as you will. Lord, it is so scandalous that we are saved. But the fact that you've then joined us to one another, given us family, that is profound grace that we will love you for for all eternity. So Lord, help us to be family. And in doing so, would your gospel truly shine out from among us. In Jesus' name, amen.